Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the Rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time. The text that I've come to share with you and talk about is from the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I also include chapter 12, verse 1 uh, in that as a conclusion. When I was a good Baptist minister, one of the things that I discovered, which was kind of shocking, to tell you the truth, kind of disturbing, was that amongst theologians now, the most controversial passages of Scripture are not in the book of Revelation. You would think, you know, of all of the books that are in the New Testament, which one would be the most controversial, the one that uh, has the most intrigue and uh, so forth to it? I would have guessed, if somebody would have asked me, the book of Revelation, just the tremendous imagery in the book and the, you know, what does that imagery mean and how do you interpret it properly? And it's about prophecy and very compelling subject and so forth. And I was shocked to discover that from a theological standpoint, the most difficult portion of Scripture in the New Testament is buried right in the middle of the book of Romans, Romans 9. 10, and 11. And the reason why it's so difficult for theologians is because it absolutely will not conform to what everybody knows to be true. When I say what everybody knows to be true, I'm talking about how we in the world today define ourselves. How, you know, in other words, what's the big plan? What has God been doing? And who are the people that are in the world? Now, let me break it down to you real simple. You will not find anybody debating in the world over this definition. I'm going to give you a definition of the world. The world is made up of Jews and Gentiles, okay? Jews and Gentiles. Now, maybe if we had a Muslim here, he might go around saying, no, the world's made up of Muslims and infidels, okay? But we'll just set aside that definition for the moment. We're not interested in pursuing Islamic thinking here. We're going to talk about Judeo-Christian thinking, thinking that is common to us. The world is defined as Jews and Gentiles. And let me give you a shortened teaching as to how we came to that. You see, God first started off with the Jews. He started off with Israel, and he manifested himself in different ways and made covenants and so forth and was trying to bring forth the Messiah. But when he brought forth the Messiah, then his real plan was to go to the Gentile world and because the Jews are going to reject him, and he's going to go to the Gentile world. So thus we have Israel and we have the church. And the basic teaching is, that in God's economy of things, how God operates, because Israel rejected God and they became divorced from God, if you will, and the church became the real bride of the Messiah. And this is the common theology of the world that we live in. And it's pretty much been the teaching theology for the last 1,700 years. And Judaism has gone along with this. They kind of like that definition, those Jews, those Gentiles. And the church has gone along with it. Us Gentiles were the church and those Jews who are unbelievers. And oh, yeah, there are some unbelieving Gentiles, but, you know, the church is for the Gentiles. The church isn't about Israel anymore. Okay. This is the basic definition. Now, you as messianic believers, you come into a messianic expression of your faith and you start investigating things like Sabbath or the feasts or festivals. And all of a sudden you're confronted with, no, that's stuff for Jews. You know, Sabbath is for Israel. Sabbath is for, for Jews. And Passover and, and the, the feasts of Israel and so forth, Yom Kippur, all that, that's for Jews. In fact, some of you have already maybe even experienced it where parents, friends, or whatever have asked you, oh, so do you keep Passover? Yeah. Uh, you don't eat pork anymore? You keep kosher? Yeah. 
uh, and you do that Passover thing, yeah. Oh, so you're turning into a Jew. You know, you're those are Jewish things. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to things that belong to believers. You see, the word believer never really kind of gets in there. In recent days, as churchmen have discovered and become a little more familiar with Jews and, and that they believe in God, too, they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they just haven't got it straight on the Messiah thing. You know, they're actually wondering, you know, well, what's the big deal difference between us and them, uh, you know, with regard to that? And I've actually had some churchmen try to suggest to me that maybe there is a way for Jews to get saved, uh, apart from the way the church gives the testimony of salvation by the Messiah. In fact, you, uh, John Hagee almost got himself in deep, deep trouble here publicly not too long ago because there is a thing called dual covenant theology. Not real popular, you know, amongst the evangelical. You don't want to admit that stuff, but let me tell you something. There's a whole bunch of evangelical believers that believe in that, a whole bunch of them. Pat Robertson, when he was running for president, you know, was asked a very pointed question about, well, do Jews go to heaven? And his response was, well, they have the Levitical covenant. I don't know what the Levitical covenant is anyway, but that's what he said. Like they have a covenant with God too. We have a different, we have the new covenant, you know, that's dual covenant theology. And so they get all befuddled and confused in this world because the Bible presents Jews as good guys. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, they're the good guys. They're the believers. You know, it was the Pharisees that were the bad guys. You know, in the, but all them disciples, they were they were Jews. They went to the temple in Jerusalem. They kept Sabbath. They, even Paul did that stuff. And yet somehow in the world today, we've got this idea that the world's really divided into Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles are the real believers, and they have the church and things like that. But when you go to read Romans 9, 10, and 11, it doesn't line up because Paul does not define the world that way. And I want to walk you through the way Paul defines the, the spiritual world, and you guys are in for a shock. Because you are no longer a part, if you're a believer in the Messiah, you are no longer a part of the Gentiles. You are part of Israel. And if you go around uh, with this diatribe saying that Israel went away, you're actually promoting and prophesying your own demise. And that's what the New Testament teaches. And it turns out that this whole theology about the church business, and I know this is going to come off weird, it's the tradition of men. It's not the teaching of Scripture. It's a conclusion by the church fathers. We didn't make that decision. You and I, nobody consulted with us and said, well, how do, how do we really properly define the world? Jews and Gentiles, church, blah, blah, blah. Those decisions were made a long time ago by a whole lot of other people. And here we are, we're born into the world, and suddenly we have this issue thrust upon us. But since we have decided to study Scripture, and since we've decided to pursue the truth, as revealed in Scripture, as revealed by the testimony of the writers of the Bible, we're in for a surprise because it just doesn't line up. I can tell you right now that when I have sat down with pastors and Christian leaders and we have looked at these three chapters, they're absolutely dumbfounded. It doesn't line up with their world. I'm going to walk you through this and you're going to understand why it's so confusing to them because it describes other things. It describes things that are consistent with the rest of the Bible, but doesn't line up with what we've been told here in our Christian faith. And hopefully, I will do this in a manner, and that's what I'm praying for. I'll do this in a manner that it will just become simple instead of complicated. And part of the need to make it simple is to remove the objections that cause the confusion. And we'll just see what it says. Just let it say what it says, and then let that be the definition you know, that Paul is going to give to us. So 
With that auspicious introduction, let us begin with Romans chapter 9. Beginning verse 1. I am telling the truth in the Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from the Messiah, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, if it were possible for me to, in effect, lose my life, lose my salvation, my position in the Lord, in an effort so that all my other brethren, my kinsmen, my fellow Israelites, and they were to come to faith and to be a part of the kingdom, I would willingly do that. Now, we all know that God is never going to accept the sacrifice of a man as a substitute for another man's sin. So, you know, this is not a case of that Paul's trying to offer himself as a sacrifice for others or anything of that nature. He's just simply expressing that he's a heartfelt desire for his brethren in the flesh. He's talking about his Israelite brethren. And a little bit later on, you'll discover that Paul's going to testify that he's a Benjamite. And the Benjamites were of the house of Judah. They were one of the tribes that were considered under the control of the house of David in the land of Judea. Thus, he's called a Jew because he's of the house of Judah. Uh, from that. And he's expressing, for the house of Judah, I wish that all my brethren, all my Pharisaic brethren, all my Sadducean brethren, all of the scribes, all, all of the people, I wish they could come to faith, because this is what God purposed. God purposed that Israel would come to faith and be the true descendants of Abraham. By faith, they would be counted for righteousness. They would believe the promises. All of that is it's self-evident, and he is expressing that uh, very clearly. Then he defines the Israel that he's really talking about. And he describes seven things that Israel, the Israel that God has purposed, has these seven things. Let me read off the seven things to you again. At verse 4, he says, Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons? Time out. Time out. Wait a minute. We Jews are natural born. We're born of the flesh. I mean, we trace physically back our descendancy, you know, physically back through the house of Judah uh, under the leadership of the house of David back to the tribes. And Paul does it. Paul says, I'm a Benjamite. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I have that clear testimony. I can trace my father's back. My name is Monte Judah. My name, Judah. I am the seventh generation in this country. My father came from Switzerland. His name was Teshuti, which is the Swiss version of Judah. And before that, our fathers are traced to Rome, where the name was Judix, which is Latin for, for Judah. And before that, we're traced to Jerusalem, where there we were Yehuda. We were of the house of David. We were of the rulers of the, of the Jews. We, uh, my descendancy is back to the house of David. And what used to happen in the ancients when you were taken captive, if you were in the royal house, like in the house of David, you wouldn't be taken captive like the rest of the other people. You would be taken as slaves to go back to the leadership or to the royal courts of whoever took you captive because you know the royal protocol. So you'd become servants of the next king. 
And so my ancestors were taken from Jerusalem. They became servants to royalty in Rome, you know, before they got sold off to some royalty in Switzerland. And like the story of Mordecai and and the story of Esther, in my lineage, my father apparently saved the king when he was in Switzerland, and he was honored, and he was made a nobleman and given a castle and a and a title and, and land, and was given freedom, and he rejected it. He rejected the title, and he, instead he got on a ship and he went to see the new world, you know, which had been, was the word was out that it was a place of freedom where people could go and they weren't under the other old world governmental stuff. And so they came to America, to the new world, so they could find a new place. Uh, to live. And my family in the line of my father's follows down the line of this country where they were in Pennsylvania and they got on the Ohio River and they rode down from Wheeling, West Virginia, and came down into the land of Indiana and Kentucky. And one of my father's dating back uh, several generations ago was one of the founding statesmen of the state of Indiana. He had a whole multitude of sons. One of my grandfathers uh, was a Civil War general you know, and the whole, and we were involved in the railroads, and and here I was born in Dickinson County, Kansas, you know, uh, from a sod house, and the whole lineage of my father's and the story is world history and and coming down to the history of this country. I can trace it back. In fact, uh, the reason I can is because it turns out that the name Judah, you know, for males, is like really significant because that's very rare within uh, Hebrew circles within the Jews. Judah is a first name for everybody else. It's my last name. It's my last name. And that's very stunning because it's tracing back to say I'm from the tribe of Judah, the leadership of the tribe of Judah from the house of David, you know, from that lineage. And a lot of my Jewish brethren are stunned, you know, to hear of it because they just can't quite deal with that uh, as to the significance of that. So with all of that auspicious background and so forth, surely since the Torah teaches that all my brethren should bow to a prince of Israel, I qualify as well. Surely, you know, if there's anybody who ought to be able to stand up and say something authoritative about the Jews, since the term Jews is after my name, they're called Jews because of my name. I'm not called a Jew because of, because I'm with a group. I'm, I am Judah. You see what I'm saying? Even that means nothing before the Lord. As far as the faith goes, I'm not one bit different from anybody else in the world. Not one bit different. It presents me with no advantage whatsoever, with the exception of this one thing. There are certain things that God purposed and planned from the beginning with our fathers. I'm supposed to be the recipient of some of this stuff. I'm supposed to receive the heritage of Abraham. It was intended that I would get it, but my ability to receive it is no different than your ability to receive it. Turns out that I have to do it by faith. So what is the first thing that Paul wants to emphasize and define about the real Israel? Every one of them are adopted. I'm adopted into the faith. I'm physically born of Judah, of Israel. But for me to be a part of what God has purposed and intended, I have to be adopted into it. I have to be elected. I have to be chosen by God to be a part of it. As Paul is going to say here very shortly, and in fact, I'll just hint to it, he says not everybody of Israel is Israel. Just because you're of Israel, just because you're a Jew, doesn't mean that, that you're in. And I'm here testifying to you and telling you that throughout the lineage of my fathers and so forth, it's a checkered past. There was, there was some that were good guys and some that were not so good guys. 
And we don't have a consistent testimony of my fathers before the Lord. In fact, well, actually we do of unbelief and disobedience. Um, that would probably be our consistent testimony. My point being is this, is that if I'm going to proclaim to you, given my physical descendancy, if I'm going to proclaim to you things about the Lord, I'm going to proclaim to you how I have been adopted into his family. I have been chosen, elected, uh, and brought into his family. So right off the bat, the adoption of sons is one of the key definitions to knowing who Israel is. That is how it's possible that you could have someone who's not at all born of that house. Someone could be brought into the house and suddenly they become that house, even though they were from somewhere else. How they become that house, they're adopted into it. The New Testament consistently teaches that every person who's in the New Covenant faith is elected, is adopted into the faith. In fact, we actually have it. It's In theology, it's called the doctrine of election. Every person. There's nobody who gets born and suddenly you're a believer of the New Covenant. Well, by the way, in truth of fact, if you're going to be the remnant of Israel, what God really began to work with, with the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same thing is true, that a choice has to be made. Just because you're physically born doesn't mean that you're in there. Uh, I don't care if you are the firstborn. You're not in there unless there's a relationship between you and God like the relationship that Abraham had with God. Unless you have that same relationship, you're not part of that. Although you physically might be in the house. You might physically have been born uh, into the house. So the next thing that Paul's going to define for us about that the real Israel has, verse 4, it says, to whom is the adoption of sons and the glory. What exactly would that mean? It means the glory. You receive the glory. Obviously, it's the glory of God. Well, you go back to the simple story about when God set up the tabernacle in the wilderness, and that's when the children of Israel saw the glory of God. It's when God's presence dwelt at the tabernacle with them. And God's presence, his presence in your life is called the glory. So what is intended is the real Israel has the actual presence of God dwelling with them, living with them. They, they receive the spirit of God. The second is the covenants. The covenants are given to Israel. What covenants? What, what covenants are we talking about? Well, the one that God made with Adam, the one that God made with Noah, the one that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one he made with Moses and with the children of Israel, the one he made with David, the one he made with the Messiah, with all of us, and the one that will be given to us when we're in the Messianic kingdom called the covenant of peace. There are seven covenants that the scripture specifically speaks of. We have received up to and including the sixth one. We have not yet received the seventh one. The only person who's ever received that for was Phineas. Phineas received the covenant of peace of the kingdom in advance of everyone. And those are very real covenants and agreements. There's provisions in them and so forth. We've not yet received the covenant of peace, but we know it will be coming and we know that we'll be receiving it in the kingdom. So right off the bat, you know, when you get into uh, teaching about the covenants, why that's in theology and church theology. Oh, my goodness, that that is a really difficult subject because they would teach there's only one covenant. There's the new covenant. It's replaced all the others. But here's Paul saying, no, no, real Israel has all of those covenants. They don't have just one covenant. They have them all. By the way, on a side note, who was the new covenant? given to according to the scripture 
the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Jeremiah 31. It wasn't given to the Gentiles. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that the new covenant is intended or purposed for any Gentile. It is given to the two houses of Israel. And at the time that Jeremiah spoke that, there were two houses of Israel. There was a house of Judah and a house of Israel. Just for purposes to make sure we're all on the same page, I want to define that just a little bit so that we're all historically have this straight. After King Solomon, when he passed away, his son took over the leadership. And in those days, it was referred to as Israel's under the leadership of the house of David. And the people from the northern tribes, 10 tribes, they came to him and they said, hey, you know, your father built the temple, built his stables, built many things. And to do all those things, to accomplish all those great things that he's done for the kingdom, you know, he taxed the heck out of us. And what we'd really like is, could you like slow down the building program here a little bit? And could you like reduce the taxes? And the new king consulted with the wise men. The wise men said, oh, yeah, you know, we ought to do that. You know, let's give a little tax relief uh, to the brethren. But he consulted with it, said the young men. And the young men said, no, you should do even more than your father did. And what you should do is stick it to him. I mean, literally in the common vernacular, stick it to him and tax the heck out of him. And so because of oppressive taxes, the houses of Israel that were to the north, led by the tribe of Ephraim, we had a tax revolt. And actually, Our Lady, we had the first church split uh, right there. And so Ephraim, in the form of a man by the name of Jeroboam, took over the leadership of the northern kingdom. There was no civil war. The prophets warned against it. No, no, let's not have a war or fight each other over this. You know, let them go. And hopefully, you know, through teaching and uh, so forth, they'll return again. Well, the house of now called Israel, which is the northern kingdom under the leadership of Jeroboam, he doesn't want the people from those lands to go be traveling down to Jerusalem, you know, for those three pilgrimage festivals there at Passover and Shavuot and weeks and and at Tabernacles, and because they're always taking their offerings down there to the temple and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't want them to do that. He says, why don't you guys stay up here, and, you know, we'll do that same stuff up here. So what he does is he builds two temples. He builds one in Bethel, which is in the land of Ephraim, and then he builds another one up in the northern regions into the tribal lands of Dan, and at a place called Tel Dan. It's the actual headwaters of the Jordan River. And he builds actual temple replicas, just like the temple in Jerusalem, same size, proportions, and so forth, except instead of having the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, he follows the Sumerian religion of which they worship the moon and a calf. And he builds golden calves, and he puts those into those two temples uh, there for it. Well, you can imagine the desecration that is. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we're actually replicating a temple like in Jerusalem, but we're putting idols in the thing. And, and so you can imagine... Theologically, there was great consternation between the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And the house of Israel was basically, okay, I'll play along with the religion. I'll play along with that. In fact, we'll do all of it, but we're going to do some other things with it. Oh, yes, we believe in the God of Jacob, but we're also going to bake cakes to the queen of heaven. And so they mixed the two together. To this day, you can go to Israel and go up to Tel Dan and see the foundations of that temple. It's still standing. The porch and the foundation, uh, you can go there. You can see it. And it's the reason why we're scattered in the nations, because we did that dumb thing. And those things are there. And 
what they were trying to do is they were trying to capture the covenants. They were trying to capture the glory. They were trying to capture, you know, they wanted to lay claim to all those things. So they made replicas and duplicates of it, of which was absolutely contrary to the Lord. If you go through and you listen to the theology of how Jeroboam speaks of what they will do and how they will honor the Lord, and he doesn't say they will dishonor the Lord. He says they're planning on honoring the Lord, but he adds other things into it and so forth. I'm just going to summarize this for you. It's classic. To hear him describe what they're going to do and why they're going to do it is absolutely classic because I can find you passages of theological writings from the church fathers that are identical. The reason why the church fathers departed from certain truths and decided to do what they wanted to do, it was for the very stated reasons that Jeroboam gave for why the house of Israel is not going to cooperate with the house of Judah anymore. It's just phenomenal in terms of how history repeats itself and how we make the same dumb mistakes again and again and again before the Lord. Paul goes on to say here that not only do we have the covenants uh, that belong to us, but the giving of the law, the Torah, belongs to Israel. Now, at this point, I'm trying to tell you, Israel is not just Jews. Jews are part of Israel, but not all Israelites are Jews. The house of Israel is also Israel, and they're not Jews. There's a house of Judah, and there's a house of Israel. This is led by Ephraim. This is led by the house of David, which is Jews. Now, the reason why we call them Jews is because they live in the land of Judea, and the leadership comes from the tribe of Judah, okay? But these are called Israelites, and they're Ephraimites, and there's 10 tribes over here. The tribes that are over here include Levi, Benjamin, and Judah. Those are Jews. Okay, over here, they're called Israelites. Now, that's the way the Bible defines it. You can go back through the Old Testament history, and you will find out there's a whole ton of prophets that were sent to the house of Israel and a whole another group of prophets that were sent to the house of Judah. And occasionally there's a prophet that might be to both. Hosea, the first prophet, was a prophet to the house of Israel. Jeremiah was a prophet to the house of Judah. Isaiah was a prophet to the house of Judah. Amos was a prophet to the house of Israel. And God would send prophets to both of these houses expressly to give a message. And so depending on who the prophet is talking to, you have to have that in context so that you can understand, well, you know, what does that word mean? I mean, you know, what is the prophecy that's being spoken? If, for example, you understand that Judah still has the temple system and it's still trying to follow the proper order and so forth, you'll find that their mistakes and the things that they're specifically, their haughtiness and their treachery toward other brethren, you'll find the prophet speaking to them of those things Whereas you'll find the prophet talking to the house of Israel is primarily talking to him about their unfaithfulness, because that's the issues that are going on with them. So that is a backdrop, and there's a whole lot of Bible history that you can read all about that and so forth. But to summarize it very briefly, the world is defined by the Bible concerning Israel, that Israel's composed of two houses, the house of Judah and the house of Israel. That's Israel. And within that, as you're going to be ready to find out, the believers can be in either one of these places, and they are called the remnant. Those are the real believers. The prophets taught that. In fact, Isaiah said in his day that the remnant was so small that had it been any smaller, they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. In the days of Elijah, you know, the prophet Elijah, there was 7,000 who were called the remnant of Israel because they had not bowed their knee to Baal. 
And at various junctures, as you go through time, you hear about this remnant and you hear about certain individuals and their testimony of what they did. And they are the remnant. And Paul will tell us, taking us all the way up to his present day, he says there still is a remnant today. And the remnant today are those who testify to Yeshua being the Messiah. And Paul was one of the remnant. Peter was one of the remnant. John was one of the remnant. And there were many believers in the first century who were believers of Yeshua the Messiah. And they were called the remnant of Israel. And they came from different tribes. They came from both houses. The scripture goes on to say that Israel received the law. So the Torah belongs to them, belongs to the remnant, could be either one of those two houses. Furthermore, it says the temple service, the whole, you know, in the earlier session, I talked about the Shekiga sacrifices, about how the Passover service was done and so forth. Who does that belong to? That belongs to the remnant. That belongs to Israel. That's part of the treasure of the heritage of being Israel. We were the ones that were given, you know, to take this place. David is the one who actually did this. David was told by the Lord, go down and buy the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. This is where I'm going to place my name and there erect the permanent altar to me. And that for all generations thereafter, that's the altar that you will go to to do business with me in that location. And that's the reason why the temple in Jerusalem, the whole city of Jerusalem was created, was because of the covenant that was made with David. That would be the place where God would place his name. That would be the place that the Messiah would come and present the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And it became known as the center of the earth and the focal point of our faith. Solomon, when he dedicated it, he said, any man, no matter where they're standing in the earth, if you turn toward Jerusalem and you petition the Lord, the Lord will hear you. That this is the place where God has placed his thing. This belongs to Israel. It belongs to Israel. He goes on further and to say the promises. You remember this morning we talked about the promises. And believing the promises of God is what is the basis of faith. The faith belongs to Israel. If you believe in the promises of God, then you have the faith that's counted for righteousness as Abraham did. Therefore, the promises and the faith belongs to Israel. That's the way it's intended. It's purposed. It's supposed to be that way. And then finally, it says, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Messiah according to the flesh? The Messiah belongs to Israel. It was purposed and intended to be that way. This is God's purpose was that the Messiah would become the king of Israel and that Jerusalem would be the city of the king and that when he would sit on his throne, it would be from Jerusalem for the whole world. That's the purpose of God. There's no questions about this. You can go back and see where it's intended. Paul's echoing. He said, this is what God intended with Israel. Time out. When did he change that plan? Never changed that plan. He's never changed that plan. Here's Paul describing the plan. In his day, it got changed after the Apostle Paul by church fathers. Church fathers went through this list and said, adoption of sons, we'll take that. The glory, we'll take that. Covenants, nah, we don't need them all. We'll just take the new covenant. Are you with me? You get down to the giving of the law? Nope, definitely don't want that. Get rid of that. Temple served that. That's out. That's out. That's gone. The promises, we'll go for that. Some of them. The fathers and the Messiah, will take him. I mean, as simple as I can tell you, that's how it happened. That's what they did. Now, that's not right. As I try to explain it to other people, God only has plan A in his big plan for mankind. There is no plan B. 
He has one plan. He's been working it from the creation. He's been working it from Abraham as a father. He took one man, made him the friend of God, built a relationship with him and said, through your family, I'm going to have you to be the father of them all. I'm going to have you to be the father of many. And the remnant, the seed of you, Abraham, is going to come down and that's going to be the basis of the kingdom. He went even further. He took Jacob, he changed his name, and he says, I'm going to name the kingdom after you. I'm going to make all of the redeemed of the house of Jacob to be the kingdom. Now, wait a minute, time out. Before we go any further, there's probably some of you sitting there going, well, Monty, that might be okay with you because your name is Judah, but where do I fit into this? Hmm? Logical question. Where do the Gentiles fit into this? We're going to get into it a little bit later on, but let me simplify it for you real quick. You see. If everybody comes into it by being adopted, um, I guess some Gentiles could come in and be adopted too, couldn't they? If everybody's adopted, what, why can't the Gentiles be adopted? Everybody's adopted into this house. Nobody's natural born in this house. So they obviously have to be adopted. Let me take you back in some history to show you the precedent for why I believe that to be true. When the children of Israel left Egypt, you know, with the Pharaoh thing and the Ten Judgments and so forth, who left Egypt? under the leadership of Moses there. Who who left? The scripture says it was a mixed multitude. The physical descendants of Jacob left, and they were joined by every slave and every person who wanted to be set free from Egypt who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ethiopians left. Egyptians left. A whole bunch of slaves of all of the other nations that Egypt had enslaved and captured, they left. In fact, when it went out, it was a true mixed multitude. You know the story. They got out there in the wilderness, and we got to the book of Numbers, and they decided to set up the leadership, you know, and define the tribes and and all that. And so what God instructed them to do says, okay, I want you to take all the physical descendants of Jacob. I want you to line up over here. We're going to count all those. And all those other people, those aliens, those sojourners, those people that have been hanging around, you know, we're going to set you over here, and let's count up the tribes of Israel. No, that's not what happened. They didn't separate the people. All of the people were counted. And there were certain aliens and sojourners that were with the tribe of Judah that got counted with Judah. And some of the aliens and sojourners that were over here with with the tribe of Asher, they got counted with Asher. It all depended on where you were at, who you were associated with. You got counted to be part of the tribes of Israel. They weren't all physical descendants of Jacob. All that wanted to believe in God, they got counted. So from the very beginning, the tribes of Israel were never those born of the flesh only. They were whoever was there, and they were counted with them. And when God decided to set up and build the Torah, who was in the audience? Physical descendants of Jacob and aliens and sojourners that were with them. And that's the reason why the Torah specifically says in the law that this is a law for the native born among you and the alien and sojourner who may be with you. The Torah was purposely given to a mixed multitude of all those who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was never given to the Jews only because we didn't even have a house of Judah in those days. It was just all Israel. It was given to all the tribes and any alien and sojourner who were numbered with the tribes. There literally were Jews in that day who weren't even Jews, but they were called Jews. I mean, that's how this started. So how did we end up with this definition 
about, you know, well, Jews are certain kind of people and they have to be physically born. They have to be born of a Jewish mother, blah, blah, blah. Where, where did we get all that? From the rabbis. When the church fathers defined the church and set up as to who could be the church and not those Jews, those Jews can't be part of the church. Well, then the rabbis did the same thing. Well, us Jews, we're, we're only going to be Jews uh, this way. And you have to have a Jewish mother, blah, 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 and so forth. It's just tradition. It's history that came about in the last 1,700 years after the scriptures were written. The scriptures doesn't describe at all the world that we live in. The scriptures are just telling you what really happened with the real people and what the definition is. And what has happened is people have taken those definitions, substituted and made new definitions for those words and for who Israel is. Israel is Jacob's and Jacob's descendants who believe in, in the God of Jacob who are on the way to the land, on the way to the promised land. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but if, you know, Jacob and Israel, the name is interchangeable throughout the scripture. Anytime you hear the name Jacob, it has reference to do with Jacob and his descendants outside of the land. Anytime you hear him being expressed as Israel, it's talking about him being in the land. Because Israel is the name synonymous with the kingdom of God. Let me give you the simple definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is defined as three things. First, you got to have a king. <laughs> if you don't have a king, you ain't got a kingdom. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's simple, right? Secondly, you got to have servants of the king. And the, the size of the kingdom is measured by how many servants do the king. If you only have a few servants, then you have a small kingdom. But if you have a lot of servants, then you have a great kingdom. The third is the land. And throughout the biblical history, at various times and junctions, we have had two of the elements, but we've never really truly had all three elements at the same time. We've had the land and we've had the servants of the king, but we didn't have the king. There was a time when we had the king, we had the land, but only some of the servants. We didn't have the house of Israel. We had the house of Judah. Remember the house of Israel after this event, the house of Israel is the one that went into captivity because of the Assyrians. And they weren't present when the Messiah came. So all the servants are not in the land. And to have a full kingdom, you've got to have the king, you've got to have all the servants, and you've got to have the land. And so that's what the whole idea about the return of the Lord is all about, that he returns with all of his saints, he returns with all of his servants. It's about we finally get it all together. What is the greatest messianic prophecy there is in the whole Bible? Is it about the redemption, the work of redemption? No. It's that the Messiah will gather all of the scattered of Israel from all the nations of the world and will bring them in a greater exodus to the promised land. Just like there was an ancient story of how Israel was born out of Egypt and we came up out of Egypt to go to the promised land, the greater story, that's a prophecy, the greater story is that the Messiah, as the great shepherd, will gather all the scattered of Israel, scattered in all the nations, and bring us back to the land. That is called the prophecy of the greater Exodus. That is the prophecy that the Jews are still looking for the Messiah to do, that the church has completely ignored. The reason why they ignored it is because they misappropriated all the prophecies about the greater Exodus and claimed it was about the church. They took all the promises that was given to the house of Israel and laid claim to them for the church. You see, the house of Israel is different from the house of Judah. So they said, see, here's the prophecies of all the wonderful things the Messiah is going to do for us and then going to leave the Jews. So it'll be Gentiles and Jews. Now, here's the really fascinating part. 
is that the house of Ephraim, the house of Israel, is associated with the Gentiles. There is an association between the house of, because they were the first ones to go into captivity. And the judgment that was put upon the house of Israel was that they would lose their identity and they would become as Gentiles. Jews remain distinct, even when they're scattered in the nations. They still, you know, they still look like Jews, smell like Jews, act like Jews, you know, the whole bit. Um, but the house of Ephraim, uh, they turn into Gentiles. They look like, uh, they look like, uh, Gentiles. They smell like Gentiles. They, you know, they talk like Gentiles. How do we know that? Where's the biblical precedent for that? Joseph. Where were Joseph's sons born? Egypt. What did they look like? Egyptians. They looked like Gentiles. They were elevated to tribes of Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, were elevated to be tribes of Israel, and they look and smell and look like Gentiles. So when they got kicked into the Gentile world, you can't tell a spit of difference between them and Gentiles. That's what the prophecy said. They would be so scattered out, nobody would be able to find them. In fact, I'll show you a prophecy here where Paul's going to talk about where he says, where Hosea prophesies to him about they will get scattered in the nations and they will become literally not my people. They won't look like they're my people. They won't act like they're my people. They won't. In fact, he said they would lose their identity. They wouldn't even know they're his people. There are people scattered in the world today who the world classifies as Gentiles that are in truth a fact the house of Ephraim and the house of Israel, and they belong to Israel as much as I, as a fellow named Judah, belongs to Israel, physically. They, too, have to be adopted to come back into the house, just like I have to be adopted to come in the house. But it was God's purpose and intention that they were going to be part of the house from the very beginning. And it's through this contrast, this dilemma, that God is able to manifest, oh, by the way, while I save Israel, I'm also going to save a whole bunch of Gentiles too, because I'll have the Gentiles join with them when I bring them out. He saved a whole bunch of Gentiles out of Egypt when he saved Israel out of Egypt, because they're welcome to come and they're welcome to, to be a part of it. And the prophecy says how the nations will come to the brightness of Israel. They'll come to the light because they're supposed to be a light to the nations, and they will come to the light and they too will receive deliverance and salvation just like Israel does. And oh, by the way, they get numbered and they get named with Israel, the kingdom. Now, a lot of people have uh, developed a theology which says, well, we're the church and we're going to zap up to heaven. And every once in a while, we'll take an elevator ride back down here to the earth. And then the poor Jews, they're going to be stuck down on the earth with all the mortals. And, and you probably heard that advanced uh, theological nonsense. And it's just not true. If you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, you have to be part of the house of the redeemed house of Jacob. And the verse that you can look up on that to verify that is Luke 2, when Gabriel came and said, you will name him Yeshua, for he will save his people, and he will be the head of the redeemed house of Jacob. That's in Luke 2. He's going to be the head of the redeemed house of Jacob. And the redeemed house of Jacob, when they enter the land, is called Israel. That's what Israel means. It's the redeemed house of Jacob in the land. Thus, it's uh, the Israelites. And this definition that Paul is given here is completely consistent with every teaching that has ever been made about the subject. This is not a new concept. This is not a new idea. And here he is right off the bat defining who Israel is, what Israel is entitled to. And he's saying that the whole purpose of all of this was ultimately leading to the Messiah, that the Messiah would be the head of this house.
the fact of the matter is, has Israel done that? No, of course not. They they haven't done that. We we all know. We know that Israel kind of has a testimony. You know, my brethren over the land have a testimony rejecting the Messiah. So verse 6, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. God purposed this, but that hasn't worked out yet. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. The children of promise. He goes on to say, verse 9, For this is the word of the promise. At that time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one mind, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his own choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, and just as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Let's look at that for just a moment, because that's fundamental about you understanding what God has purposed from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we have the three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham married Sarah, and from him we get Ishmael, who was the son from Hagar, the slave woman, the servant woman. And then we get Isaac from Sarah, and he's the one that's the one of promise. He was the one that was promised by God. Okay, Ishmael wasn't promised by God. Ishmael showed up as a result of Sarah and Abraham trying to figure out how to help God out, which didn't really help. Isaac had two sons, twins, through Rebekah. The first one born is Esau, and then we had Jacob. And you know the story. Esau was all red. He was called Edom. He came out first. He's the firstborn. He's the one that we should be dealing with, right? No, it turns out, no, no, no. Before they were born, God spoke to Rebecca and said, Rebecca, this is what's going to happen here. The older one will serve the younger one. The younger one is going to be elevated. And you remember that Jacob came out and he was holding on to the heel, you know, the heel. Let me explain Jacob's name to you. It means hand, yod, on ekev, the heel. Hand on the heel, Yaakov. That, that his name at birth, that he was given that name because of his hand was on the heel. So it's called Jacob. And so it's Jacob is the one who has been prophesied. This is the one who was promised. This is the one who was prophesied. And this is the one who was loved. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now we come from Jacob down, and Jacob has a whole series of sons, whole series of them. He has a son, Reuben, through Leah, and he also has a firstborn son in the form of Joseph through Rachel. But Reuben really is the physically firstborn. Is Reuben the one who would get the blessing like Jacob did? No, it'll be Joseph. Joseph's firstborn, Manasseh. Is he the one who will get the blessing from Jacob? No. Ephraim, his secondborn, comes this way. So it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Ephraim. None of them are firstborns. Why? Why did God set that up and do that? Because he's trying to demonstrate and explain something. When you're going to be in my house, it's not going to be because of your efforts of because of the physically the way you were born. It's going to be because you are the promised one. You are the prophesied one. You're the loved one. In the case of Joseph, you're the favored one. Joseph was favored. You're going to be the favored one. Down to Ephraim, and Ephraim means what? Fruitful, bountiful. You're going to be the fruitful and the bountiful one. That's God's choice that all this is going to happen this way. Now, it happened right there in front of our eyes. The remnant of Israel 
are those that are promised. They're the ones that are favored. They're the ones that are loved. They're the ones that are prophesied about. They're the ones. It's according to the word of the Lord. It's according to the judgment and decision of the Lord. Thus, these are the chosen people. These are the elect of God. These are the adopted. These are the ones that are chosen by the Father. And that is our heritage. That is how we become part of that house. So therefore, it follows that if the prophets say that God also intends, and this goes all the way back to Abraham, Abraham, in your seed, in this line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What I intend to do with you, Abraham, is for the benefit of the whole world. It's not just a little private family thing. Whereas everybody teaches it's a private family. Everybody teaches it's Jews and it's Gentiles. You got to be a physical Jew. This issue of what we're talking about is still a current issue to this day amongst Messianic Jews and amongst Messianic believers. Let me tell you what is the number one heartfelt concern within the Messianic movement. If you don't have a Jewish name, if you don't have a, a Jewish testimony, if you don't go in and say, well, you know, I'm Jewish, then don't plan on getting any favor or attention, your direction, or being received well in most of the Messianic congregations in the Messianic movement, because most of the Messianic congregations are led by Jews who've never learned this. They've never been taught the Torah. Just because they were born Jewish doesn't qualify you to be a Messianic rabbi. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. You know. But most Messianic rabbis are Messianic rabbis because they were born a physical Jew. It's completely backwards from what is the teaching of the faith. You know, if the Messiah really had followed what a lot of people think in this regard, you know, when he showed up as the Messiah, he should have hustled down there and got three Pharisees, three Sadducees, a couple of scribes, and maybe a couple of guys out of the Sanhedrin to make those guys to be the apostles, right? He didn't do that. Why? Well, one of the reasons why he didn't do it is because he needed to get people who would believe in him, and they don't, okay, right off the bat. He needs to get people who will humble up and just believe in him and trust him because it's based on the children of promise, not based on physical stature or descendancy or that's that business. It's not based on that. Therefore, in our circles, if you hear churchmen talking, well, that guy is a Jew, they're making just as much of an error as you hear of a Messianic Jew says, well, we're Messianic Jews. It's silly. The Lord doesn't use the scaling or the system to make any of his judgments or determinations. And by the way, it's historically proven in what he did with the fathers. It's historically proven in what he did with the fathers. Elijah the Tishbite. What tribe is that? <laughs> There's no tribe of Israel that claimed the Tishbites. He's, he's a Gentile. Elijah is a Gentile. But he's a prophet of the Lord, recognized by Israel to prophesy to them. He's not a prophesy of Benjamin or Asher or Naphtali or Judah. He's a Tishbite. How about Uriah, the Hittite, one of the mighty men of David? He lived in Jerusalem. He's written up in the scriptures. He was one of the generals of the army of Israel. I mean, you're going to stand up and say Uriah doesn't belong here? No, he definitely belonged there. He was the close personal friend of David. David sent him to the front line so he could steal his wife. Nobody's saying he's not an Israelite. He fought for the armies of Israel. He was a general in the armies of Israel. I guarantee you he's an Israelite. 
although his physical heritage is from another place, but he's still part of it because he believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's there to co-labor with Israel right along with the rest of them. You know, this business that those of Israel are just the physical descendants like Jews and so forth, which is what the world would like to define it. It's not true in the Bible. Absolutely not true. You cannot find any Cretans in the Bible to justify or support any of it. It's, in fact, a misrepresentation of Israel in truth of fact. Let's go a little bit further. He lays out his argument showing the history of the fathers to prove his point. And here's how he uh, summarizes all of this. He said, verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. In other words, what he's saying is, is God doing this wrong? Shouldn't God be sticking with the physical descendants? I mean, is, isn't God messing up here? You know, defining Israel with all of No, he says, no, that's not an injustice. That's not appropriate. He says, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's God's decision as to who gets mercy and who gets compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power on you, that my name be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That was after the about the seventh or eighth judgment that uh, finally Moses came to uh, Pharaoh and said, hey, Pharaoh, I I just want to make sure I got something real clear with you. If God wanted you dead, you'd already be dead. But God has decided to use you in the hardness of your heart to manifest God to a whole lot of other people. So don't get any idea about how that you're holding your own well here or that you're going to win or prevail in this whole matter. You're just simply subject to God. You're doing what God wants you to do, you know, like, if you will, a, with a ring in your nose, and I'm leading you, and you're doing exactly what I want you to do. You know, you have no say in this whatsoever. You're simply accomplishing what needs to be done. There's an ancient uh, teaching about Pharaoh that's uh, shared by the Jews um, in the aftermath of Pharaoh. The teaching is that if you end up going to hell, the first person that you're going to meet at hell is Pharaoh. He's going to be at the gate. And in particular, if you're a tyrant, if you are a grievous sinner and you've done harm to the children of Israel or to the Jews at all, the first thing that you're going to do is you're going to go to the gates of hell and you're going to be chastised by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's going to say to you, you're so stupid. Didn't you learn anything from me? And that's the first thing that a tyrant's going to hear in hell. He's going to get chewed out by Pharaoh for never learning anything about it and learning from it. And it talks about this will about how Pharaoh was used by the Lord. Verse 18, the conclusion. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, right off the bat, there may be a twinge within you saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, if God is, has that sovereign and that much in control, well, then, you know, how can that be right? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, why, you know, everything is subject to God. Then, you know, I mean, why, why, why do we have anything to say about it? Listen to what he says here. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? Fundamentally, think about this for a moment. If God's really God, we're subject to him? No, it's the other way around. If he's really God and we're really man, we don't have any say about this. We are totally subject to him. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Does a pot rise up to the, the pot maker and say, why did you do that that way? That doesn't happen. Even pots know better than to ask such a question. The question could be asked of us, why don't we know better to avoid such a question? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honor and another common for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, 
and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Basically, he said, what if God decided to make certain vessels of wrath, certain vessels that are going to be for judgment, and, and then he had vessels of mercy, namely us, and he decided to put the two together, and it was for the purpose of revealing and manifesting himself to us. Why can't he do that? Doesn't he have the right to do that? If he wants to make himself known to us, and this is the way it's going to be done, doesn't he have the right to make himself known to us so that we'll understand him and, and, and so forth? The answer is simply yes, he does have the right to do that. That's the nature of being God. What we should be doing, what our response should be is, thank you, God, I am a vessel of mercy and you put your mercy on me. The only thing that should be in your heart is not a question, but rather one of gratitude and thankfulness. Thank you, Lord, for life. I'm no judge of my life or of any life. You know, I defer to you and to your mercy in that regard. And then he's going to make a powerful statement. And this is probably in this chapter, this is the verses I want you to specifically note. In fact, if you're the type that makes marks in your Bible like I do, you might want to underline this verse because this is a powerful, very powerful statement about to be made. Verse 24, even us, referring to us as vessels of mercy, even of us whom he also called, not from among Jews only. So who are some of the vessels of mercy? Who are some of those that are called? Well, there's some of them which are Jews. But he says, not just from the Jews. He says, but, verse 24 says, but also from among Gentiles. I want to put that down. From among Gentiles. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about Gentiles? Mm -mm. He's not talking about Gentiles. He's talking about a people that will come from among the Gentiles, though. So who's in amongst the Gentiles? The house of Israel. The house of Israel in 720 B.C., and there was a series of uh, captivities that went into it. That's when the first of them went. The house of Israel, the tribe of Ephraim and the ten tribes, they got taken captive by the Assyrians, and they got taken into the Gentiles and dispersed amongst the Gentiles. When Yeshua came, do you remember this statement? I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is he talking about Jews there? He's not talking about Jews. The house of Israel is are not Jews. I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why did he say that? Because the prophecy said that the Messiah will come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel and that to fulfill that prophecy, he would go to the place where the darkness first came. He would be the light where the darkness first came. Where was the first captivity of the house of Israel? Where did it happen? Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. So where did he set up his ministry? Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. To be a testimony, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm going to repair the breach right here, the breach of where there was unfaithfulness in the land right here. I'm going to repair this breach, and I am here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, to back that up, to prove to you that he's not talking about Gentiles, Paul then quotes a prophet to prove his point. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place that where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Hosea was a prophet. He was the first prophet, and he was the prophet to the house of Israel. He didn't go to Jerusalem where the Jews were at. He didn't go to where the house of David was at. He went north. 
he went up into those regions and he prophesied to the remnant of those people, the people still remain, and he was prophesying to the house of Israel, and he was specifically, this is essentially the prophecy he gave. This is, I'll give you a short synopsis of Hosea. Hosea had a very unfaithful wife. Like Israel, who was unfaithful to the Lord, the prophet acted out like the role of God with Israel. He had three children. In the naming of his children, he pronounced the prophecy upon all of Israel, the house of Israel. And the first child that he had was named Jezreel, which means scattered. He said, uh, Israel, I'm going to the Lord. I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to scatter you throughout the nation. You'll be like Jezreel. In fact, there is a valley up in the northern part of Israel called the Valley of Jezreel. It's a very great, large valley. It kind of extends from over at Haifa and the coast and extends all the way down to the Jordan Valley area. And that's the place. It's the reason why it's called Jezreel or scatter is because that's where they would scatter the grain. That's where all the fields, you know, for growing grain fields is at. So you scatter the grain to plant harvest, you know, for that. And so he says, I'm going to come. My first child is going to be Jezreel after that valley. And because the Assyrians are going to come, they're going to defeat you in the valley of Jezreel. And God is going to scatter you throughout the nations. Lo and behold, guess what happened? Uh, just as the prophet said, here comes the Assyrians. They come down. They defeat the armies of Israel up there in the northern kingdom. Where did they defeat them at? Valley of Jezreel. Defeat them in the valley of Jezreel. They're scattered. You know, they're loaded up, taken back to Assyria. And Assyria just basically sent them all, all over the place, scattered them, sold them. Second child was named Lo Ruhamah, which means no compassion. I, the Lord, will take my face. I'm going to turn it away from you. I'm not even going to look at you. You know, when you're talking to me, I'm not looking at you. I'm turning my back on you. I'm going to ignore you. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And I'm not going to listen to your appeals or your cries. I'm not going to give you any compassion whatsoever. I'm turning my face away from you. You'll receive no compassion. Boom. That's bad. I mean, it's one thing to get scattered. But the Lord won't even listen to your prayer. That's really bad. Then the final judgment was he had another child and he named him Lo Ami, not my people. And he said, and after I scatter you in there and I will have no compassion on you, I will take your identity away from you. You will live scattered amongst the Gentiles and you won't even know who you are. You ever met any other people out in the world and you ask them about their ethnic and their background and so forth? You ever heard any people say, I haven't got any idea. Pretty good chance they're probably the house of Ephraim. Because the prophecy said they wouldn't have the foggiest idea where they came from. Now, Jews never lost that. Jews, uh, you know, had the judgment upon them. But they always knew they were Jews. They, they, they belonged back in the land, the, you know, the Jewish homeland. You know, they, they always knew that. But the Israelites, you know, the house of Israel, they didn't know that. And they were so scattered. It was You can see why it was so easy for the enemy to, to spring up a lie and say, oh, those guys are gone. They're, they're never going to come back. They're never going to. Only the problem is this, is that God said, yes, there's a day coming when I will bring them back. I, the Lord, have said it. I, I will do it. Despite what you've done, despite what you think, despite the fact that you don't even know who you are, I promise to your fathers, I will bring you back. And that's the great promise of the greater exodus. That's the promise of the Messiah. When the Messiah came, he came preaching, I have another flock. Yes, I have this flock here, but I have another flock. John chapter 10. And according to Jeremiah, the way that other flock was to be gathered in Jeremiah 16 is that the Messiah would do it in a very unique way. He would dispatch fishermen to go fish for them. That's exactly what it says in Jeremiah 16, that the Messiah would appoint fishermen who would go fish for the house of Ephraim, the house of Israel. And so here's the Messiah telling the disciples right at the end after the resurrection, I'm going to make you the fisher of men. 
Paul understood that. Paul understood those prophecies. He's a Torah scholar. How many of you know uh, Paul's background as a Pharisee and so forth? He was trained, he was discipled by a very famous rabbi of those days, Rabbi Gamaliel. He was the tip-top rabbi for anybody to be trained. You couldn't be a disciple of this particular rabbi unless you had committed the Torah to memory by the age of 13. We don't need to be looking up no Torah scrolls to see what the scripture is. You have to have the scripture already put in your memory if you wanted to be a disciple of mine. That's what Paul was qualified to do. Paul had memorized the entire Torah by the age of 13, and he was taken under the wing of Gamaliel to be discipled. Paul, the apostle Paul, was in training. He was the heir apparent. He was going to be the head of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He was boy wonder in Judaism. When he was receiving those letters of authority to go out and arrest Christians early in the New Testament period, it was because he was doing kind of his final thing. He was demonstrating to the whole Sanhedrin council, you know, how committed he was into their principles and their goals so that he was the heir apparent. He was about the boy about to be brought back in. And so you can see that when his testimony, when he decided to become a believer, how, how that rocked the world. I mean, it, it went throughout the whole world that this guy had become a believer. Well, not only is he a believer, but he knows these prophecies. He knows Hosea. He knows who Hosea was talking to. And the reason why the Apostle Paul wanted to be the guy to take the gospel message to the Gentiles, the reason he wanted to be the apostle to the Gentiles, is because that's where his brethren, his kinsmen, are at. And he wants to get the message, the gospel message, to every one of the Israelites. It's not that he wanted to go start a Gentile Christian church and start Christianity. He was fulfilling the prophecies to be one of the fishermen to go fish for the house of Israel. And in his day, they were saying the Jews were still down in Jerusalem. He's still there with his brethren. But he wants to go get the other members of the house of Israel, the ones that are scattered. That's his authority to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Boy, isn't that different from what we've ever heard or been taught before. We thought he was going out to get the Gentiles because the Jews don't believe. And he's going to argue against that and to say the Jews do believe. The remnant has always believed. The Jews didn't reject the Messiah. The remnant has always been believing. The remnant of Israel is still with us today, just like it's been every other time. So where do we get this thing The Jews rejected the Messiah? That's a lie. That was a lie in the day that the apostles were walking around. They're Jews. They have the testimony. You don't hear them saying the Jews rejected the Messiah. Instead, what you hear them saying is that the remnant believes in the Messiah, which is what it's always been. The remnant has always been the ones that held to the Lord. Sure, lots of Jews didn't believe. Lots of Israelites didn't believe. Lots of people don't believe. But those aren't the ones that are the vessels of mercy. They're not the ones that are prophesied, promised, favored, chosen. They're not the ones. The ones that God has chosen and put forth there. So having made the argument with the prophet Hosea, he also adds to the whole teaching of the whole remnant that Isaiah does. He quoted from a prophet to the house of Israel. Let's quote from a prophet from the house of Judah. Let's see what that prophet has to say. Isaiah. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. That's from Isaiah 10, where Isaiah is talking about the remnant. In fact, that's a very interesting passage because that's when Isaiah is talking about how the Messiah is going to gather all of Israel at the end of the age. Because at the end of that verse, it says there is a destruction is determined, you know, one that has been determined by the Lord. 
And he's talking about the day of the Lord. There's a day of the Lord coming. He goes on further to quote another thing from, and he talks about where Isaiah talked about the remnant. Verse 29, just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and resembled Gomorrah. It's about the remnant. It's about the remnant of Israel. That's what God is doing. God is dispatching to save the remnant of Israel for them to hear the gospel message. That's the reason why the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. So who is the remnant? The remnant of Israel is defined at the moment is those from the house of Judah who believe, those from the house of Israel who believe, who come from among the Gentiles. And there's a natural question. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the Gentiles? Where do the Gentiles fill into that? Look at the next verse. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law? What he's basically saying is we've got Gentile believers amongst us. What is going on here? Israel, whom God purposed this for, didn't get it. We've got unbelievers in there. And people that weren't even purposed for it, the Gentiles, they've accepted it. You know, what is with that? You know, that's what Paul's asking. So what is the deal with that? I mean, how does that fit into God's plan? Why then did they not pursue it by faith, but as through my mere works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone? He's trying to say there was a huge mistake made on the part of Israel. You remember I was telling you earlier this morning that Moses taught faith is counted for righteousness, righteousness is kissed, justice, and justice demands sacrifice, and with sacrifice you have salvation. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and those who are the religious leadership changed it. They got obedience mixed in there. They said obedience produces righteous works. They said works produce righteousness, and that's not what Moses taught. And Yeshua came teaching that's not right. Faith is counter for righteousness, not works. Works produces a blessing, not not righteousness. And as a result of that controversy, many of the religious leadership rejected the word that Moses said. Why? Because they rejected what the Messiah said because they'd already rejected what Moses said. And if you reject what Moses said, you're going to reject what the Messiah has to say. And so he's explaining because of that, that's what's taken place. And he also further says that that was what was prophesied to be, that the Messiah was supposed to be rejected. You know, you could go back and say, just like Joseph was rejected by his brethren, you know, the Joseph was thrown in the pit. He rose up out of the pit and later he became in charge of the world, the whole world there in Egypt. Well, the same thing happens to the Messiah. You know, the Messiah uh, gets rejected by his brethren, comes out of the pit and becomes king of the whole world. It's the same messianic theme and story. The explanation by the prophets says this, verse 33, just as is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's the great message of like the, the messianic story of Joseph. And in the case of the Messiah, he would become like, he would be a stone of stumbling to some. He would be a stone that's rejected by the builders but this stone would become the chief cornerstone, you know, of the whole building. And this contrast of the rejection uh, of the Messiah by the very people who are looking for him, the, the irony of such a thing. And as a result, he'll later explain, because of this, this is what has opened the door for the Gentiles to be able to come in, that God's purpose was the Gentiles were going to be saved. So he actually exploited and used that, the rejection of the gospel from Israel, to cast into the nation so that the, the Gentiles would come to faith. As he goes into it. chapter 10, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. This is essentially the same message that was given here at the start of chapter nine. What Paul's trying to explain is the salvation of Israel and how it's to take place.
from the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado. This is Solace Radio.